Hail and well met, Traveler. Welcome to the Tavern. Did you know this is the place where more than half of the greatest adventures in history have begun? But before those adventurers took their first steps, they watched and calculated who would join their party. Why look over there? There's a mighty barbarian from the Frozen Lands. Strong, mighty, full of honor and wisdom. I happen to know that one. They go by Matt Rossi. And look over there to the right. That woman working away on her mechanical dog. She's cunning, witty, and I've seen her bounce more than her fair share of ne'er-do-wells out of here before I can even blink. I happen to know that she goes by the name Liz Harper. And me? Oh, my name's Joe Perez. And I'll be your tavern keeper. Welcome to Tavern Watch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tavern Watch a roundtable discussion about, well, tabletop gaming. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Joe Perez, and I'm joined with my stupendous, creative co-hosts, Liz Harper and Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, guys? Hello, hello. I am doing okay, I think. It's always good to be doing okay. So You think? I think. Thinking's think. pretty good, too. <laughs> so, I mean, do we want to start with the news, or do we want to go right into our topics of conversation? What do you guys think? I, I think we should hit a little news roundup. There's a lot, a lot of stuff happened this week. There is a lot of stuff happening this week, and I, I'm going to start with uh, probably. I'll, I'll, I'll kick this over to Matt. Uh, Paizo actually has been in the news quite a bit recently, and not necessarily yeah. for great things. Matt, no. Um, there was a. I don't know if you guys know who Jessica Price is. She's basically worked in role playing games for a very long time. She worked for Paizo, uh, then she went off to work for ArenaNet, where some things happened as well. Um, but recently she posted a, a, a Twitter thread talking about the conditions at Paizo and how they were not ideal. And as a result of her thread, which I'm not going to try to summarize here because it was very long and very involved. Um, but as a result of it, my cat is screaming at me through the door. Hi cat. Hello. Cat. Um, <laughs> but as a result of it, she, you know, the, the, the workers at Paizo basically said, all right. Um, a lot of us have had similar experiences, uh, and they've decided to unionize and mm-hmm. they voted to unionize and they created the United Paizo workers union. And unlike what a lot of companies would have done, I will give Paizo credit for this while they're having their, their problems. They did decide this week to simply accept that the union exists and to go into negotiation with, them. that's a huge thing. Most companies in this position would probably hire a strike busting firm or something. Yeah. But I, I'm wondering if what's happening with, with blizzard and riot and EA and, uh, well, also, I is, think that's absolutely the case. A little, yeah. sequ- a little bit more uh, careful about it. I think that's part of it. And I'm also willing to admit that I think that in Paizo's case, a lot of the stuff that happened at Paizo, although not all of it by any stretch of the imagination, but a lot of stuff that happened at Paizo, I'm going to actually attribute to people not knowing how to run a company. Yeah. Like straight up because they were not people. Paizo exists because Wizards of the Coast in the in the nineties, not in the nineties, in the uh, 2000s decided we don't want publishing anymore. Mm-hmm. Like they had a they had a publishing arm and they decided they didn't want it anymore. So they they basically farmed out their two big magazines, Dungeon and Dragons, 
to another company, which became Paizo. Uh, Paizo was run by people that used to work at Wizards of the Coast, mm-hmm. and it was very much like a, it was kind of like an independent subsidiary arm of Wizards of the Coast. And then Wizards decided they didn't want those magazines anymore at all. And so they just canceled them. Yeah, because it was and a dying left, medium. Yeah. This left Paizo with nothing to publish. And most people would have just said, okay, I guess I don't have a job. Paizo instead came up with things to publish on their own and eventually became Wizards' biggest rival. Yeah. Um, and honestly, and they're, they're the two biggest names in the game right now, really. Absolutely. And uh, as a result, though, I think Paizo had a lot of people as executives who simply were not suited to that job. They were not good at it. Uh, and, and I don't know. I, I know some of the people there. Uh, weird story through a quirk of my bizarre life moving various places. Uh, in the like early 2000s, up till before 2006, I lived in Seattle and I was in a D&D game with like several people from Paizo. So I, I don't. I don't know anything about the company, but I know specific people who work there. Um, as a result of that, um, I can say that like some of the people like, you know, I, I know James Jacobs and I think pretty sure he's a really good executive, but there's other people I don't know very well. And my point would be just that I think it's not the same situation as Blizzard where stuff that happened was, was really bad and, and needs to change. But I don't think that they were trying to cover it up. They didn't understand what they were doing. And so I think that's one of the reasons that they've accepted this union and that they're going to work, they're going to negotiate and work forward. Regardless though, it's a huge step for the industry. Uh, them unionizing and, and being successful at unionizing at the second largest company in the, and saying second largest company in, in, in the TTRPG sphere does not mean a big company because let's be upfront, you're Hasbro or you're everybody else. That's, this is a, a, an industry that is dominated by one company. And, and so this is not going to immediately change things, but it is interesting uh, because it, rec- it means that the, the, it's like a tectonic shift, really, the, the entire structure of how freelancing and working for a company is going to change. And if Paizo changes, by its very nature, it's going to affect the industry in ways that we, it's very hard at this moment to really know what they're going to be. But it is big. It is a big deal. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that this will lead to, to positive change, but I don't know. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see and hopefully get a, get some more perspective from the people who actually unionized because yeah. that's a big deal. I will say this though. This was an example of freelancers, not basically it's because freelancers came in and helped straight up freelancers helped with this unionization effort. And without them, it would not have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, Paizo simply couldn't ignore this union because the people that they would have turned to to try and get around it were absolutely not going to do it. Yeah. And that's a situation where I'm hoping that one of the points that someone made on on Twitter who from the union was that as things stand, they can no longer be fired at will. That That's the law in Washington. Once you've got a union shop, you cannot fire people at will. It's not an at will situation anymore. So Paizo employees cannot simply be fired just because it suits the company, which is kind of important because yeah. And I, I don't. I, one of the things I think that was was sort of eye opening was hearing some of the accounts of how people were were having to live. Um, Seattle, the surrounding area, are not exactly known for being cheap living spaces. No, um, they are not. And there was this pervasive attitude, and this is something that we see in the the game industry as well on the video game side. Um, it's this idea that people should be lucky to work here. They're not making they're, they're full-time employees, 
but they're making peanuts and they're not making enough to actually live. And so like I was reading up on this and it, it was heartbreaking. Like people who would work 40 hour weeks would then also pick up freelance jobs, jobs that were literally being freelanced out uh, just to make rent, just to make food budgets. Like that's, that's obscene. And like, yeah. and especially for like one of the largest game companies, tabletop companies in the world at this point to, to have people in that position. And then they have that sort of attitude of people should be lucky to work here because there's a million people that would do it for free. Like that's just the wrong attitude. So hopefully, hopefully we'll start to see a, a turnaround in that because I like Paizo's products. I think that their, their tabletop games are fantastic. Uh, Starfinder, yeah, Starfinder is one of my favorite spacefaring RPGs. I will also say that a lot of the things that I like about Paizo are the result of the workers there. Yes. 100%. The, the, the employees and the, the freelancers who have come along and they've pushed for inclusivity and they've pushed a lot of the stuff people talk about in, in fantasy RPGs and especially D and D as problematic is stuff that, that Pathfinder has deliberately cut itself away from. Mm -hmm. Like they don't have races. That's gone. They got rid of that. They have ancestry. You may think that's a subtle difference, but it is, it is still an important, um, they go with ancestries and heritage. So your character is, you know, you know where their family is, but you, you're not defined by it the same way. And I think that's great. You want to get rid of as much biological essentialism as you possibly can. And they've done it. Um, they've, they've brought in people who, you know, they've, the entire Mwangi expanse is a non Eurocentric campaign that they built. Um, and this is, again, it's the, it's the freelancers and the employees, not the management here, but the management didn't stand in their way at least. And that's something, uh, this just, it, the problem is, is that this is not an industry that has, come to grips with where it is now. There's a lot of that. The RPG industry came out in the, in the seventies and eighties as pure hobbyism. And the people working on the stuff were just as much hobbyists as everybody else. Uh, and you can go back and, and see about the tragedy of Dave Arneson. If you want to see how this industry has always treated people. Um, and it, I'm not going to like sit down and break down everything that happened to Dave Arneson, but Dave Arneson is the guy who actually invented Dungeons and Dragons. You, you've heard of Gary Gygax, and Gary Gygax is the guy who published it, and Gary Gygax is the guy who wrote down a rule system for it, but he learned how to do that at Dave Arneson's table. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dave Arneson came up with a game and was running that game and invited Gary to come see it, and then Gary wrote his own, and it is that simple. Um, so yeah, I, this is a big step, and it's, it's vitally important that these spaces start to grapple with what they actually are. Um, and I, I, I am totally very happy. I'm extremely happy that the union is, is going through that. They, they decided not to be, uh, Wilmer Hale about it and fight it. And it's, it's a good step. And I, it's one I would like to see other industries follow in, um, quite frankly, yeah. but yeah, that, that's a big deal in and of itself right there. Liz. A lot of the entertainment industry, like we talk about video games more often than we talk about tabletop games. And this is a big problem there as well, because you get people who are fans of things, who are passionate about them, and they love them so much that they are willing to go and take jobs that are underpaid, jobs that don't let them, you know, pay their rent because they're doing something they love. They're living the dream. And it's okay. Yeah, you're kind of living the dream, but you also need to live. And uh, what's the old saying? The old saying, mm -hmm. um, if you love, if you're doing something you love, never do it for free. Yep. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, because if you if you start doing it for free or you start doing it and you're underpaid, then it's just you are passionate and you are going to put everything into it, but you still need to support yourself. And the gaming industry has used this against workers for a very long time. Mm-hmm. They've been able to get away with not offering great rage- wages without offering competitive wages. So it's it needs to end. And it's probably going to take unionization efforts like this to get them to recognize, okay, we can't just say, oh, anyone would do this for free because they would love working here. Because no, no, these people are professionals working hard, doing a good job. They deserve a fair wage. Yeah, there's and it's and it's not just limited to video game companies or tabletop RPG companies either. This is something that recently came up in conversation uh, regarding studio painters for the big tabletop wargaming uh, scene. Um, so a lot of them, if you've watched like videos and you see people like Jose da Vinci or Anjar Geraldes, like those are big names. They can command prices, but the studio painters for the actual like studios have been getting paid peanuts for years. And these are the people responsible for the box art, all the art that goes into the magazines, all the art that's used to sell the product. Uh, the ones that do the tutorials and everything like that. Um, there was uh, Meg Maples, a uh, fantastic artist. Um, she wound up like making more money commission painting than she did working 50 hours a week for Privateer Press. Like it, it, that is just ridiculous and, and like just blows my. Um, yeah. So it's 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 a pervasive problem that hopefully with Paizo now becoming a union uh, union shop will inspire others to sort of take up that mantle and start having that collective bargaining power. Because again, we all love these games and the people that make them are no exception to that. They should be taken care of and they should be rewarded for their hard work because without them, we, uh, we wouldn't have the games that we love to play. Yeah. And especially in situations like, like Paizo or wizards of the coast. I mean, it's one thing like green Ronin is probably never going to unionize. Cause I think it's five people. It is five people. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not going to hear about, you know, Green Unit, Green, Green Ronin is five people and a couple of freelancers. And that that's not going to change. Onyx Path is not going to unionize because there's just not enough people working there for it to matter. But once you start getting up to the point where, you know, you've got an international reach, then you really need to start thinking about how you treat your employees. Uh, the difference between a big and a small company. In the, in the RPG sphere, the difference is I'm working out of my basement and it can it can change really fast to suddenly oh okay now I'm an actual company yep and and that some of the biggest companies in the RPG space are like Green Ronin they're like five people uh, Privateer Press is remarkably small for its reach yeah um but even eight, even then it's just on that it's just on oh, that yeah. cusp right like no, they went they, exactly went, the they went from Look the at, they went from a mom and pop like in a garage to a full blown company Look at Games Workshop yeah who's been who've been like big in the in the wargaming field for i don't know like 40 years now and the and the rpg field before that like tsr yeah. tsr brought them to the states because they were making yeah. D minis they're, they're still big enough in the rpg field that they can put out an rpg just whenever they feel like it mm-hmm. and that's 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 a power that not every company has the, the the industry needs to grapple with the burgeoning popularity of itself and how this isn't something that's just a bunch of pe- the same people at conventions every year. You know, I, there's there's still a lot of people who think this is 1985. And that that mentality, the same mentality that's like, you know, oh, women don't play these games. Or, you know, brown people in my D&D. 
that needs to go away. And also this idea that, you know, this is all just friends and we don't have to treat this like a business that needs to go away too. Agreed. Um, but uh, I think that's probably all we need to talk about on that one, right? I would agree. I think we can move on from that one to something slightly more happier. And this one, I'm going to kind of lean on Liz, I think. Uh, possibly, no. Matt. Oh, you're going to have to. That's that's a, that's the deal we made. Uh, Critical Role Season <laughs> 3, Call of the Netherdeep, actually just started up. Um, well, I will note that is not the name of the campaign. That is the name of a new book they're ah, putting out. With, okay. uh, Wizards See? of the Coast. Yeah, so there's a new adventure book they're putting out. That's called Call of the Netherdeep, and it's going to be out early next year, I believe. And it's going to be set in Marquette, which is where the setting for Campaign 3 is. So it's it, it it's ties related. together, but it's different. Yeah. See, this is why uh, I have so you they, talking about it, because I know nothing about this. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they kicked off Campaign 3 on this past Thursday. We've seen one episode, and it's... I think it's been really interesting to watch Matt Mercer and the whole table, how they've evolved over the years. Like if you look at the, what they were doing in campaign one and campaign two and campaign three, they've like, the storytelling has evolved a lot and they've clearly all learned a lot about building worlds and building characters. And it's just, I've I've been thinking just from watching the first episode, just a lot about that evolution and how interesting it is because I've always enjoyed watching Matt Mercer DM, but it's like he, like if I if I look at this campaign three and I go back and I look at like the first episode of campaign one that they streamed, there is there is such a world of difference, and it's yeah. just it's been interesting to watch that journey with all of these people. Well, I think they've de- they've definitely developed as a production No, yes. production company too, yes, but as performers, all of it. Um, one of the things that I've noticed that watching the older episodes to the newer episodes, and, and this mm-hmm. is probably my forever DM goggles, but the first episodes are basically just their role-playing game on TV. Like they just yes. recorded it. They got some cameras and they just recorded themselves doing this campaign two is where it started. They really started to consciously do this. They, they did it at the end of campaign one, but in campaign two, they started to consciously perform well they they started mm-hmm. getting the attention and official like blessing of uh watsi at that point didn't yeah they? They, absolutely but the the thing that really sticks to my mind the, the 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 moment where like it's most apparent the shift in focus to understanding oh we're doing this on camera is when they i i want to say when molly mock died I'm sorry, spoilers for campaign two, but guys, it's been out for a couple of years oh, now. that's that's been more that's been many years at this point yes yeah so when Molly Mock died, it, it hit them that this is a show. It's not just our D&D game anymore because this happened and we have to grapple with it. Our characters have to grapple with it. But so do we as players. We have to grapple with it. Like Talison was clearly distraught. Very much like, so. Like he was not like he wasn't angry at anybody, but he was upset. And that was and he processed it, and that's great. And we get to see that. I think that's something that every D D game should have. Mm-hmm. Uh your your character might die, and if they do, you know, it's okay to be upset, but try not to be mad about it. But it's just watching that development, watching that happen openly. I'm like, okay, this is where they started to realize they're doing a show. And the live shows they did, they've done live shows before, but the live shows they did helped the the one that really comes to mind is the one that closed off that arc really set up that campaign two is being run in chapters. Mm-hmm. It's not just, it's not just a campaign with setting arcs. 
it's chapters. It's a story being told in sequence. And that was, that's something that a lot of players watch this show and they think, oh, oh, this is how we're supposed to run our games. Guys, they are professionals. Yeah. Not just professional D&D players. They're professional actors. Yep. With a, they're professional, with a professional production team with them. Yeah. And, and yeah. a lot of money and microphones and cameras. and Yeah. All of this stuff is not stuff that you're going to have at your table. And that's fine. And it, that's, they would tell you that if you yep. were to speak at Matt Mercer to, with Matt Mercer at a, at a convention somewhere, he would be he's, the first one to say, this is not he's quoted normal. It. He's quoted as yeah. saying that he's legitimately said that in multiple interviews. Yeah. It's, it, it is not, do not hold yourself up to this standard be, unless you're actually trying to do this. Are you trying to have a, a TV show that is your campaign? Because if that's what you're trying to do, I mean, good luck to you, but <laughs> the, there's, there is something really fascinating about like we i think liz and i both watched uh, episode one at the same time of, of campaign yeah. three and yes. there's a moment where i think sam regal comes forth and displays how much sam regal he has become <laughs> and this is it i honestly feel like sam is like possibly the best player at the table in in pure D D sense like he is possibly the best player there because you look at what he did at the end of campaign one and you look at all the stuff he did in campaign two and you're like, he knows exactly how much he can do to disrupt things without actually disrupting things. Mm-hmm. And that is a skill that most players don't have. They think they do. Um, they don't. Yeah. They, they think they do, <laughs> but they don't. And Sam is, has not always gotten it right. I mean, there's some stuff he did in campaign one that just flat out offended me. Yeah. It was yeah. upsetting. Um, and in campaign two, he skirted the line and his, his scene in campaign three, where he, he now understands like with us with like almost a, a stiletto precision when to throw that thing out and just disrupt the whole table and he'll just keep going. And I, I think Liz, it was, you said something along the lines of, you know, like Sam will make you love his character, then hate his character, then not know what you feel about his character before he takes like, you back to loving his character. It's like, there was like a five minute span where Sam's character came on and I was like, I love this character so much. I would die to defend them. And then, like, 15 seconds later, I was like, I hate this character. I never want to see it again. And then, like, five minutes after that, it was like, oh, God, this is so horribly offensive. I cannot deal with this. This is terrible, and I hate it. And then, like, 10 seconds after that, I was like, this is making me so sad. I love him. And it's, I mean, it's like this little emotional journey, and all of Sam's characters seem to have this love, hate, happy, sad. I don't know. And it's, it's uh, like every one of the players at that table has a different way that they're strong at that. And it comes mm-hmm. back to their being them being performers. Uh, and this is something that I find absolutely fascinating about Critical Role. Um, I don't actually like watching Critical Role when it streams. Mm-hmm. Because I don't like... First of all, I don't like having to sit and watch something for four hours. I mean, I, I, I'm flat out. I am pretty sure I have ADHD. I've not been diagnosed <laughs> with it. But my when I got my psychiatric consult this week, the guy was like asking a lot of questions and kept saying... You know, they were questions like, do you have ADHD questions? And I'm like, so I don't think so, but this, this, this. And he's like, aha. So yeah, I'm pretty sure they're going to end up telling me I have it. And it is torture for me to watch something for four hours. It's torture. Like I cannot handle it. My brain is like, I could be playing my video game. I could be writing something for the site. I could be writing something for myself. I, I got to go to the bathroom. I got to drink something. I got to talk. And, and I get up and leave and come back. And just when I'm watching it recorded, like on YouTube, 
I can pause. Yeah. yeah, I can pause. I can go do something else. I can watch half an hour of it. So that's my my metier with this. That's that's my preference. But watching it live, another thing I noticed was they've learned to show you the player reactions. Like Liz was talking about, one of the things about playing D and D is is your group. When 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 I was when I've been running the game for Blizzard Watch as one example, Joe, I there's like I can always count on Joe to try and wrangle the group. Yeah. Yep. And I can always count on Mitch to to throw a spanner in it. And I can always <laughs> count on on Anne to be like the, the she likes to be engaged in things. And I can count on Liz to kind of be like the irascible voice of reason that people don't listen to because D&D players never listen to the voice of reason. It's just like you could stand up and tell them like there's treasure literally just over there. All you have to do is walk over and get it. Yeah, but what's this? That's that's a pit full of snakes. <laughs> yeah. What if there's treasure at the bottom of the pit full of snakes? Yeah, oh, there's literally exactly. treasure over there, but but snakes. Yeah. So watching your group go, that's where you'll get gems. That's where you'll get, you know, a, a character oh, yeah. ref- refusing to talk to their own god or a character deciding no i don't want to go to the magical city I, and and yeah i know i joke about that but it was actually an amazing moment i often because- say that the best game that i ever ran was the game that i i think i literally said 15 words and the table just ran everything three hours yeah and that's one of the things i i noticed watching episode one of campaign three was that they've learned to give you that they, they're giving you a sense of it they can't give it to you because you're not there you're not, you're not playing player. yeah but they can let you see it happen and they are doing much better. In the first campaign, they're just all jammed in chairs next to each other. And that's, there's no camera work to speak of, especially the first few episodes. I mean, it's literally looks like it's in somebody's basement. Um, there's like a chalkboard even, I mean, it's, it's not complicated, but as they've gone on, they've, they've sophisticated it up. They've got a a set that's actually got elements on it that they can use. And, and that you get to watch them react off of each other. And, that to me, when when the group comes together in that opening scene with the animated chairs, and I forget who said it, but I think it was uh, Liam. Liam's like, "It's been a day. It it's been a day," and he, you can tell he's not reacting like he, this is not him like you know being an actor man. This is literally him as a player saying, "Yeah, that was something." That's the kind of thing that I really find fascinating much about this. And I have talked for a while now, so I'm going to shut up. I was going to say, it's one of the things that I can actually appreciate about it. Like, I'm not a big, I'm not big into critical role stuff. Uh, it's not that I don't uh, like it or 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 whatever. Um, I've heard some people say that they think that I hate it. I don't hate it. Um, it's just, it's not my cup of tea. Um, I, it's the performative nature of it that, that sort of takes me out of it. But I appreciate the fact that at the end of the day, at least more now, I think that they're finding their stride again. Um, it's now more feels like you're seeing a collection of people who are just friends that like to get together. And yes, there is that performative nature of it, but there's more elements of that. And that's usually what I look for. Um, well, plus the, it's inside baseball for you, man. Come on. It, it is absolutely I think inside for, baseball for me. For a lot of people. Um, one of the reasons I didn't watch it for a very long time was because I'm like, well, I want to watch people play D and can do that all the time. But, but here's the odd thing. Like I listen yeah. to podcasts about it too. I listen to live play podcasts and I really enjoy them, not because they're like rules layering or, or, or like super technical. It's because even at the end of the day, even with high production value, um, and I'm writing, I'm working on doing a something for the next week for for like 
RPGs to play during like Spooktober and, and the end of the year. Um, but like Dark Dice is this fantastic audioscape podcast that you know they're they're very performative, but at the end of the day, they play off each other, and it feels like people that actually can interact. Um, and that's what I enjoy because, like you mentioned, they talk about you're talking about now where they they show you the player reactions. Those are my happy moments. Like those, what I, I that's what I like seeing is I like I like sort of players being invested in their characters. Like um, not to sidetrack completely, but if you've listened to the podcast and you've listened to the game that I ran for the group, Otherworld, they got to interact with NPCs that existed in the campaign that I ran for three and a half years before they started playing, before the current group started playing. Uh, and those characters like Hatterai and D and Walter, the players that played them are still invested in their characters. Like it was one of those things where like, those are my happy moments when players are invested in the character. So like when something happens to them, even years later, like they'll talk about it and they have those sort of like gut reactions to it. And that's when I, that's when I feel like I've done my job, if that makes sense. And so like seeing, like we were talking about the death of a character in critical role season two and how that had to be processed and seeing the reactions to it, stuff like that. I can appreciate not because a character died, but because you can see that the players are actually invested in their characters and it's not just a production for it is. No, great. absolutely. That is actually one of the things that I think is, is most interesting is that balance. Yeah. But uh, like Liz was talking about again, when we were watching it, um, when you pick a character in, a, in an RPG and especially for them, because their character will now be something everyone's fan arting and talking about and so forth in a way, Talison got to have the best of both worlds and that he got to, play a different character mm-hmm. and something about role-playing games that i've always found fascinating is sometimes it's you can love this character you can want to play it more but also you kind of want to play something else at the same time sometimes the story and is just done character death can actually be liberating in that yeah. way mm-hmm. or you can be like in in the Shadowrun game you ran where i never got enough of my character and i i'm really mad that we didn't keep playing that game because i <laughs> wanted to fin- finish that but yeah i I don't know, Liz, you got anything else to say about uh, this? Uh, no. I mean, it was fun. If you like Critical Role, I think you'll like this. And if you don't like Critical Role, well, then it's another D&D podcast out there that you don't have to listen to. Yeah, and it is it is very much their thing. I do have to, I have to point out one thing. There was some griping because this is the first time they've done a campaign with characters that existed before the campaign. Um, t- two of the characters are from the Exandria Unlimited uh podcast show they ran mm-hmm. and one of the characters is actually from the search for grog short they ran uh one of the characters actually was in that and i i love it so much it's hilarious yeah. i heard some griping about this but the the characters from Xandria unlimited were the characters that they were planning on playing in this they were just so excited about them that they wanted to play them earlier yep and that's that's how they got into Xandria unlimited so i don't have a problem with that and moreover I remember my first six or seven or eight D and D characters who were the same guy over and over again. <laughs> I still have my fir- my very first character sheet that I ever made. I don't because I've moved like eight times, but um, <laughs> I still remember the character who was simultaneous. Like he's been named like four or five different things, but it's always it was always a ranger who used two swords. Cause that was even before Drizzt Orden existed. That was a ranger thing. It was the two absolutely swords thing. a ranger thing. Two swords, uh, talked to wolves, um, lived in the mountains, had a brother who was nuts. I, I played that guy like forever. I, pl- I just kept playing that guy. 
that happens. Sometimes you want to like play the same thing again. You want to see what will happen. So I got, I, if I had a problem with it, which I don't, I actually think the character choices were inspired. I especially think that, uh, Travis's character choice was inspired because he's playing a, an, a untrustworthy scoundrel type character. Uh, and he's doing it really well. Uh, quite frankly, it's, it's some, some good times, <laughs> but just that idea that, you know, it's not a re- not all original characters guys. Sometimes you just want to play a character like, and it doesn't matter. Like, you know, it, I don't care that this is well-worn. I've in the games that we've run on the site, I have played like a big hulking physical destroyer character at least twice. Yeah. Um, although like one of them that I play, we, the, the group, the game that Liz runs, I didn't intend for the character to turn out to be a death machine. Monks are just scary. Uh, I was terrifying. trying. I was, yeah, terrifying. Matt does terrifying things whenever I shove shove enemies at them. Yeah, I just, if, it's it's not. It's and not. And if fun. I was there and casting holy weapon on his hands, it'd be even worse. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, you, I think we should move on. Yeah, I was gonna say I, th- I think there's a the the personal investment I think is in there, which we're gonna talk about in a little bit here. Um, the, another thing that is coming out is at the time of this recording. Uh, we are three days away from the release of Fizbin's Treasury of Dragons. Uh, we'll be releasing on October 26th, and we've gotten a ton of previews of stuff that they are bringing into the game that revolve around, well, again, dragons. Um, personal favorites of mine, there's an eye stalk dragon, uh, which is the stuff of nightmares. It's an eye drake. It literally has eyeballs for for an eye stalks for wings an eye in its mouth false eyes for actual eyes it's basically a dragon beholder and it is absolutely terrifying and beautiful and will at some point see tabletop time in my game uh another one that they're bringing out is uh, again nightmare fuel is an elder brain dragon it is literally a dragon that has been infested uh through the the act of ceramorphosis uh and grown into an elder brain uh which if you know anything about mind flayers is kind of a big deal and also that's that's scary as a player i never want to see one uh but there's a dm you can't wait to to do 100 percent, 100 percent. but we're also bringing back bahamut and tiamat uh clerics of both as well as dragonborn that spawn from both new rules for dragonborn uh the gem dragons are coming back uh which haven't seen print since 3.5 uh nope that's true uh, which I still have that book sitting on my, 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 the Draconomicon is still sitting on my shelf, wow. literally two it's feet away. It's literally from next to my monitor right now. <laughs> it's like right there. The red dragon is, is looking at its babies right now. So yeah, dragon books have often been some of the best stuff that wizards has ever done. Uh, that's the case of the original Draconomicon in, in second edition, yep. uh, which was a book for the forgotten realms. Uh, yep. the third edition, Necronomicon, which was just a dragon's book. Uh, they did two of them in fourth edition, which weren't as good, but they were still pretty good. Um, straight up. I, I liked those books. That's what got me interested in actually playing fourth edition. And this book looks to be simply just chef's kiss, lemon juice and all that. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited for it. I'm super excited that they're bringing the draconians in, even yes. if they're just monsters. Yep. Uh, quite frankly, I want them to Marvel make draconians playable. To retain- um, even if it's as simple as, you know, just saying the draconians are like evil dragonborn or whatever. But yeah, the idea of the draconians and how they come into existence and what they are is fascinating to me. And it always has been. It's one of the best things about the Dragonlance setting. So yeah, th- this is just a book that is going to be really cool. 
Um, James Wyatt, who is one of the designers on it, and he's been a, he's been around Wizards for years. He worked on three point five. He worked on four. He worked. He went over to work on Magic: The Gathering for a while, and now mm-hmm. he's back doing D and D stuff again. He's been posting pictures from the book. Oh God, yeah, yeah. And he did one of the one that got me was the uh, um, Amethyst Dragon. Have yes. you seen the Amethyst Dragon? Yes. Yeah. It, it was literally described as, you know, dragons are often sinuous and powerful. And I wanted that, but I also wanted a chonky boy. So he's like all chonky <laughs> in the middle. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's cool. It actually really does look really cool. Um, so yeah, this is just going to be a crazy good book. Yeah. Which Amethyst dragons uh, have always had a soft spot in my heart because uh, that is my birthstone. And uh, I am super into the color purple. So super happy about that. And I'm also super happy that it's a thick boy. Liz, what do you think about the, what we've seen so far with Fizzbands? One of the things that I think is most interesting about Fizzbands is I'm a relatively new D&D player. I've only been into this for the past few years. I'm like a lot of people. I knew someone who was watching Critical Role. I started watching Critical Role. And then I started learning about D&D. Then I started playing in D&D. And that's, that's how I got here. Um, so I have not played an edition before 5th edition. So everything in Fizzband is like brand new to me. And I hear all of these, everyone else, I hear my friends who play D&D talking about, oh, we haven't seen this since 3.5 or we haven't, oh, they're bringing this back. And I'm like, this is all exciting and new to me, but it's, it's, there's this difference in perspective here. I'm, I look at this and I see, whoa, it's this cool dragon book. All of these dragons. Wow. These dragons are so cool. And everyone else is like, oh yeah, they're bringing this back. They're bringing that back. That's awesome. I am very excited about it, but I think it's interesting that I have this completely different perspective than the two of you do, because I'm just, this is all new to me. And that's kind of why I want to, I want to get your impressions on it because like Matt and I, we've already established we're dust. We we've been doing this so long, but getting fresh perspective. From this tomb, I speak to you about Dungeons and Dragons past. I'm I'm recording from inside of my philacrity. Um, Seriously though, like getting the perspective from somebody like you, who's, you know, sort of, newish to D&D in general and definitely new to running it uh, is refreshing. So like, what's the thing that, that you've seen so far that like as a new DM that, that excites you the most, like what, what is any, if there's anything about Fizzman's that kind of like is beyond me. I'm, I, I'm just still in like when they announced it, I was like, ah, dragons are so cool. And I'm, I'm really kind of still in that spot. Like I've seen a lot more dragons since they announced it, but I'm still like, dragons are cool more dragons yeah um yeah i'm i'm not actually sure how i would use any of this content in any of the games we're running yeah that is the problem right there yeah that is a problem because choice you know, paralysis like almost the, not the, just well, that in the, candle, in the candle keep game we're doing everyone is level five so maybe no, not. there were dragons that we're level four are you still Okay, well, you're almost level five yeah that's part of the problem Either of like way, you know scheduling boss you yeah. you end up like you know you're hanging for a bit but yeah, what are you going to do? You can't throw a great, you know, you can't throw the elder brain dragon at a level four exactly. party. It's I can't, I can't throw the beholder dragon eyeball dragon guy at you. It's, I don't know. And the, the witch light game, not really an ideal setting for dragons. So also the party is level one. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. That's actually one of the things I like about Fizzman's is that it has hooks that allow you to like use dragons before you actually use dragons. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like that is one of the things that I like about it, um, that it's, it's deliberately going to set up. Okay. You know, what effects do dragons have on the world? If these giant flying armored fire or lightning breathing lizards exist, 
what do they change? What, what does this do? And so, you know, you could have an entire adventure for like level one group that, that involves dragons, but doesn't have any in it because they'd kill you. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's about the impact of them. That's cool. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I also, and also there, there are new options for dragon boards. That's yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just going to yeah. say that. And I think that's, that's some interesting fleshing out there. I think that's actually really cool because I think Dragonborns are one of the the races that has traditionally had the least options for customization. Um, well, they came up in fourth edition, right? Yeah. Like, I don't remember. Like, I think they might have got mentioned. No, they in were in three. They were in three point five uh, towards the end of the three point five. I forgot it was like Player's Handbook, like five or whatever it was. It was like the last Player's Handbook that they released because three point five was weird, folks. They released a lot of yeah. handbooks. Um, yeah, they did. But it was one of they they introduced some and then they really flushed them out in four. And I always thought they were a really cool addition. But being limited to sort of like the chromatic range of dragons, it doesn't sound like it'd be limiting. But I know some players wanted to have a little more variety or more well, options, right? I think a lot of people point out that with Dragonborn, uh, you basically end up with what's the difference between a red Dragonborn or a gold Dragonborn color? Yeah. You know, I mean, and they they wanted to make it. Yeah, that's why I think the gem dragon board are really cool. Same, um, quite frankly, because they're going to be weird and, and psionic. And, and now, that's cool. And now Dragonborn that have that tracer lineage to Bahamut and Tiamat as well. Because mm-hmm. those are those are being added in, which is the first time that we've had a a god lineage uh, to Dragonborn, I think, ever. Which I think is really neat. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that there's a lot to this book, um, and I'm looking forward to getting it when I ever have money again. Uh, but until then, I know I'm gonna like mooch off of Liz anyway, because well, yeah, you'll yeah. be able to see it on D and D Beyond. Yeah, so I'll just mooch off of Liz when I'm using well. when I'm designing stuff for, <laughs> for campaigns, or or I'll send you, you know, a PDF again. Yeah, <laughs> there's lots of ways I will be mooching off of my friends, but yeah, um, I definitely want to buy it when I do have money because it it is it is the kind of book I want to reward. Um, not that I don't like other stuff that Wizards has put out, I do, but I really like the idea of a book that is so. It's focused on one element and it explores different ways to use that element in your games. And that's really cool. Um, I I mean, the last book I was like this excited about was the Theros book. And I have gotten a ton of mileage out of the Theros (laughs) book. I love the Theros book. It's fantastic. It's still one of the best alternate covers or or, uh, collector's covers that I think they've produced too. Just going to throw that out there. It is absolutely great. But uh, at the same time, the Theros book is only useful if you plan on running a game in Theros or if you're really liberal about what you allow in your other games, <laughs> like, you know, if you're going to allow those, those playable races and stuff, it's not useful for most people running a straight D and D game that they are already running. Cause they, it's like these, these are not, you know, standard fantasy things. So it's limiting in what it allows you to do. Whereas this book, it's much more plug and play. And I think people forget for a lot of DMS, that's really the, the problem mm-hmm. is, you know, how do I use this? How do I get this into my campaign? How do I, I mean, I'm already running a game. My, my characters are all level four. They're working for a wizard and they oftentimes refuse to actually, you know, engage with the evil plot because it's not their job. How do I actually get a dragon into this? Mm, yeah, and I this, wonder, I wonder who could have that problem. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing is lots of DMS have that problem. Yeah. Um, like when I when I did the the early Riaton stuff, I threw dragons at you way before you were ready for them because I knew that you know I'd set up stuff for you to, to so you didn't have to actually get out of the boat and fight the dragon, you know, because he would have killed you in one go. 
but that oh, yeah. was that wasn't what the, the adventure was the dragon was there to motivate you to get on the boat um and that's to me i that's the kind of thing that fizzman's is going to provide and that's why i think it's great yeah i, I think it's going to be a great tool especially for people like that want to do their own homebrew game systems that are not game systems but game worlds um especially like or or for newer dms that want to learn how to like slot these sort of like dragon encounters or dragon lineages in and then giving players more options. Uh, I say this every week on every podcast we, we record and I will constantly say it more options is more good. And then the, uh, just to move away real quick and cover the last sort of news item we have uh Spelljammer appears to be on the horizon. Uh, we I did- dispute this. You can dispute this all you want. Um, well, here's my thing. I'm not, I'm not disputing that it would be cool. And I'm not disputing that elements from Spelljammer are going to be in the next thing. But I I am willing to say right now, my call is that when the next thing we get is going to take Spelljammer and Planescape and and merge them together. Yeah, likely. Very likely. Um, So for those of you that that don't know, uh, a new Arnarth Arcana came out, uh, which starts talking about the multiverse. uh, And that is literally the title of it. It's Travelers of the Multiverse. Uh, it is some ridiculously good stuff, introduces a whole bunch of uh, new races as well as uh, some returning old favorites and talks about spell jammers, uh, which originally was just a bunch of loose packets that you purchased and never actually had a full book, if I remember correctly. Uh, well, there was the um, there was the original spell jammer book, but that was that was a, it was, was a binder. Yeah, it was it was a binder that was all the loose leaf boxes that they put together. I yeah, think. It, it is that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but so far we have astral elves, auto gnomes, uh, which if you play uh, World of Warcraft, it's not exactly too dissimilar to the uh, mechanic mechano gnomes that we've experienced there. Uh, gifts, which I will always pronounce gifts, um, which are giant space hippos. Uh, yeah, the Jeff people. <laughs> uh, Hadoozy, which are basically flying monkey space people. Uh, Simeon folk. Uh, one that I know Matt was super excited about, plasmoids. Yeah, I'll I'll talk about the Hadoozy plasmoids. Here. But go, go ahead and finish. And, and the one that I was most excited about because these have always been a favorite of mine because I am I am a hard dark sun stan, the Thrycreen, which yeah, are the, giant mantis people. Uh, here we're gonna have another one of those things where Liz is a new DM doesn't know why i'm losing my mind yeah i mean i i matt matt wrote a post about this and i read it and i was like okay you need to write this like you're writing it for an idiot who has no idea what any of this is you're writing it for me okay you you need to explain this yeah i i i object to you calling yourself an idiot but i do understand that not everybody is my level of insane yeah um Back in the 80s, TSR, the company that originally owned Dungeons & Dragons, uh, before they got bought by Wizards of the Coast, who then got bought by Hasbro, um, they 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 had a thing where instead of running stuff, nowadays when they have a new game idea, they'll they'll make it D&D. Back then, they didn't do that. Back then, they would put out a whole new game whenever they felt like it. Yep. Uh, Sometimes these were great, like Gamma World. Um, Sometimes these were great, but not for me like top secret or boot hill which was like top secret was their spy espionage game and boot hill was basically the james bond the game uh boot hill was cowboys like straight up this is a western it's a western rpg it's it's not a western rpg with magic and it's literally just cowboys it's cowboy movies the game um one of the games they put out was called star frontiers and they put Mm -hmm. it out you know, after Star Wars became big, and let's be upfront, it was basically like you guys like Star Trek and Star Wars. Here's a game. 
Yep. And the thing was, is it was good. It was weird because it was very much a, okay, let's do space opera, but it was still good. It was fun. And it had a whole suite of completely different playable races and they tried to get a little bit more alien with them. So, um, one of the races was the Yazirans. The Yazirans were winged flying monkey people, uh, that they were like literally like flying monkeys, but people. And the, the Drazolites were also known as a plasmoid race. So when this on Earth, when this on Earth, they kind of came out and I saw the Hatterzee who have been in D and D before and the plasmoids, the plasmoids are Drazolites. It's, it's, down to how they describe them in the unearthed arcana with the, the sensory pits and the vein clusters. It's exactly how the Drazolites were described. So I, I, I lost my mind because star frontiers in D and D we could get all the weird races from star frontiers. And we could get spell jamming as a means to travel through space to high tech planets. And, and it seems like that might be the direction that they're going because yeah. they just announced previously, like last year, uh, there was the announcement. Uh, why can't I remember his name now? Uh, Ray Wing, Ray Winnegar, um announced that they're going to be working on three classic settings uh, and one entirely new settings. And then we had right after that Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft came out and reintroduced the Demiplane of Dread. It seems like they're doing what we asked a long time ago, and I know we're not alone in it. It's revisiting a bunch of these classic settings that we haven't seen in forever. Like Matt mentioned on our very first recording of Tavern Watch, you know, Forgotten Realms is larger than anybody really truly realizes. There's a bunch of settings, a bunch of places that people just haven't visited. It, it hasn't had any books, book time, or anything like that. Uh, Matt's talked about Dragonlance. I've talked about Dark Sun. There's a ton of settings that they could use this as a vehicle to reintroduce because one of the most common questions people have been asking is, sure, all these things existed, but how do you make them exist when everything seems to be centered around Faerun? So do you now you have a vehicle for it. you have spell jammers, you have multiversal travel, you could go to Greyhawk, you could, you know, go to Atlas, you could go to all these different places potentially. And that's a huge pull for me because a lot of these classic settings had really fun elements that have wound up. I've sort of taken over the years and put into other other world and having like modern equivalents and canonical things that I can just go, I don't have to homebrew this anymore is a big draw for him. Uh, it makes yeah. my life easier. Right. So, yeah, I definitely think that that's the direction they're going in. I remember Liz was the one who actually pointed it out to me was that they, they have the book, uh, Morden Kynan's, uh, monsters of the multiverse coming out. Yes. Yeah. And they've been focusing on, basically they're focusing on what I would call streamlining their lore. Yes. Like trying to come up with coherence where, you know, okay, we've got these, they exist. What does that mean? Where do they go? Um, the Demiplane of Dread versus the stuff in Witchlight with the Domains of Delight, who are like, which is like Their the Shadow, the Shadowfell has the the Domains of Dread. The the um, Feywilds. Feywild has the Domains of Delight, which are like literally the opposite of those, because the Feywild and the Shadowfell are basically the opposites of each other, and that's really cool. Uh, and they even have the Witchlight Carnival is something that goes between those two realms. It goes from the Shadowfell to the to the Feywild and back again, uh, and there's and there's a whole thing about that that was mentioned in the. I haven't actually read the Witchlight book because I'm playing in the game, so I don't want to spoil Same. it. 
but I, I some of the uh, pre-release hype talked about this, so I've I've gotten that because I didn't I couldn't avoid. It. There's just I think that is definitely something. However, I do want to talk about the thing we started talking about before we did the show, so I want to kind of try to move us towards that if you don't yeah. mind. Not at all. And this is something that I think is, is kind of we're, one of the law of most asked questions we get here uh, for this podcast that we've gotten for our pre-show on the Blizzard Watch podcast. And that I get asked a lot on Twitter and in DMs on Discord is how do you get started in tabletop role playing? And I think before we get into the specifics of it, I think it's the important conversation to have is something called the rule zero or session zero conversation. Now, this is a concept that actually started, believe it or not, as a Magic the Gathering thing way, 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 way back when um, in the 90s, where it was trying to talk about power levels of the decks you were bringing to a table so that everybody could be on the same level playing field. And the idea is that you sit down and you talk about what type of game you want to have. Over the years, uh, tabletop players have started to adopt this Rule Zero conversation, where before you even get started, before you start looking at the specifics, you should really have in mind what kind of game you want to play. And you should talk to the people that you're you're prospectively going to play with and make sure that everybody's on the same page. Now, we talked about this a little bit with uh, the uh, critical role stuff. And I'll let Matt and Liz sort of like talk here because I, th- I think that they have some important things to say about having that kind of opening conversation. Matt? I have nothing important to say ever. But um, <laughs> I will say that uh, my voice is cracking a little at this point because I I'm parched, but I'll basically when, when you do one of these and I didn't do one for Riotan because we were all just doing a one shot. I mean, that's part of the problem with Riotan from the beginning was we literally were just doing a one shot. And so I was like, okay, I'll just throw you in the deep end. It's a, it's a one shot. We'll be in and out. And then next thing I know, uh, it's a year and a half later and I'm still doing this. <laughs> So, but it is, it is actually something I would, I want to do for the new one when we get it to the point where it's ready for that. Um, the, the important thing is there, there's a, a, a concept in, in the world and in, in role-playing games, it is a concept that is hard for some people to understand and it shouldn't be, uh, it's the concept of consent. Yes. And the thing about consent is it isn't just like about like one thing. It isn't just about sexual like actions or what have you. It's about what people want to experience Uh, in a role-playing game. There are things that, you know, if everyone on the table wants to explore these ideas, that's fine. Go ahead and do what you want. But if there's somebody at the table who doesn't want to have certain experiences, they will not enjoy it. It won't be fun. And that's the point of the game. The game is here to be fun. If you're not having fun playing it, you won't play it. People will stop. Uh, People will absolutely just, you know, come up with a reason not to do this anymore. If it's not fun. And there's so many reasons to not do it that are just like life pushing down on you. You don't need the added incentive of also the the dungeon masters doing things that I don't want to have happen. Uh, this was actually, this happened on another streaming game, and I, f- I forget the name of the game, so I'm not going to use any specific details. Um, but but a, a relatively famous uh, player and DM in the online, you know, streaming D&D sphere forced one of his characters to essentially go through what would, would could be described as rape. And he, this was the end of that show. People were like walked away. People were like, I'm not doing this. You, you know, you always, when you are running a game, you have to keep your players comfort in mind. Uh, not just about stuff like that. Just are your players, the kind of people who are going to be bored silly. If you never get in any fights, that's something to know. It's something to keep in mind. 
Um, are your players the kind who are really going to love uh, a political intrigue guest session where like they're, they're mingling with societal hobnob, you know, societal high ups and hobnobbing with the greats and, you know, trying to ferret out what's really going on, or are they going to hate it and be like, when do I get to punch something? I've been standing here at this party in this fancy outfit for 25 minutes and I haven't hit anybody yet. You know, there are, if that's your group, give them a fight. These are questions that should be asked. These are conversations that should be had. Um, so yeah, there's lots either. Like this should be something you should periodically check in with your players. Yeah. There absolutely should be a barometer going on where you're constantly taking the temperature of the game uh, and figuring out what's going on. But like when Liz set up the Witchlight game, and this is my way of kind of turning it over to her, but at the same time, when we set up the Witchlight game, she told us up front, this is going to be like this. Do you all mind if I do this? And we were all like, no, we don't mind. This is now I'm going to shut up so you can talk less. Um, well, I mean, I think I've had it a little easy because I'm running. I So far, I've just been running published adventures. And there's there's a really clear pitch I can go in with to talk to the players about and say, okay, this is what the adventure is like. Is everyone cool with this? Does everyone understand this? And with Witchlight, the whole premise of the book is that it's a lot of social situations, a lot of social interaction. And sure, you can go in and murder everyone if that's what you want to do. I mean, no judgment to people who play D&D as a like combat game because it has it has a solid set of combat rules. And so um, it, it's, it's understandable that you would play it as a combat game. But the Witchlight book is a little different in that every situation in the book can be resolved without combat. So conceivably, we could go through the entire campaign without any combat. Conceivably. Unless I, like, decide to throw an angry dragon in the middle. I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Liz, but if you throw an angry dragon in as a bard, I am obligated to seduce it. Yeah, I can't. I, I, I don't know if I can stop him on that one. But <laughs> Also, I, I don't actually mean that. Uh, one of the things that I... I one of the things that I actually am a little irked by is the internet insistence that bards can seduce anything. Not everything wants to have sex with you. I'm sorry, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, bards bards have to do bard things. I mean, if you go to a tavern, you have to try and sing for your supper. I mean, that's just, that's a rule, right? It, but I, I, I wanted to point out, like, you, you, you kind of, I, I think maybe glossed over it and you said that it was easy because, like, you had a very easy pitch. But a lot of people just don't even have that conversation. And, yeah, and you and I want to point this oh. one out. Liz specifically asked us, yes, if it was okay to make the characters all have a relationship of some kind with each other. And us being the the people we are, <laughs> we're like, oh, okay, is it okay? Are you kidding? <laughs> Within five minutes, Joe and I were playing siblings. Yep, we're, we're twin. <laughs> we're twin rabbit siblings. We're good. Let's go. We, like we yeah. shot off with it. But like, yeah. but you, it, as a person who's been doing this for a while, and not just as like a player and as a DM, but somebody who spent a lot of time in local shops in trying to to bring this hobby to other people. I, I notice like a lot of people don't have this conversation up front. Uh, they don't talk about what type of game or what type of experience they want to have. And yeah. I think it's more important now that we have such a broad saturation of produced content for D and D and tabletop in general. We talked about it a little bit earlier, like with the different podcasts uh, that are out there and available, whether it's not another D and D podcast or dungeons and daddies or, or whatever, whatever flavor you're uh, broadsword 
Awards or whatever you listen to, they're outside, very, the outside Xbox, outside outside Xbox. Extra games are really good. Yeah. I'll just throw that out there. They're also very good. There's there we're spoiled for content, but at the end of the day, that's getting people excited and potentially trying to get into these games that haven't played before or maybe brand new to it. Well, and Liz just Liz just said that. Yeah. Like, that's how Liz got into that this. That is exactly how Liz got into this. So I think it's important to have the conversation that Liz had with us, which is this is what I this is what the book does, or this is what the type of game it's going to be. This is what I kind of envision. Is everybody on board for it? And what Matt to take Matt's point that he said a little bit earlier a step further, it's it's more than just reacting to your players. At the end of the day, if a player is bored or not engaged, it can cause a couple things. One, it can make a player not want to play the game anymore and walk away from it. I've actually seen somebody in the past get up, walk away from a table, and leave their books in the store because they were not having fun. In fact, they were actively being railroaded to a certain extent, but because that table never had a discussion about what type of game everybody wanted to experience. And that person didn't play again for a decade. And like, that's, that's bad. Or you have players that it's not going the way I want to go. So now they're going to be extra disruptive. And then they could potentially ruin whatever the experience is for the other people because nobody sat down and had a conversation about what does everybody want to do? Or they become sullen or, or there, there's so many things that can turn somebody off from yeah, people playing that being game. people. Yeah. yeah. People being people, you have to actually cater to them to some degree, which is fine. It's as long as you know what you're doing. Exactly. So, and, but I mean, keep in mind too, that we're in a really complicated place right now in terms of starting a new game, mm-hmm. in terms of getting into the gaming thing. Um, it's still hard to have in-person games. Uh, you know, if you're lucky enough to have one, that's great. But a lot of times, if you're trying to set up a new one, uh, you can, it can depend on where you live. It can depend on, like, you know, what the, I'll just be upfront, the COVID status in your area is. Like right now, what Alberta. Local- what the local yeah. game store is doing as far as like I, I've seen the game stores that check vaccination status before they let people in. I've seen some that don't care. Yeah. And like up here in Alberta, like there's, there's not a lot of in-person gaming anyway, because it just, it isn't a hot spot for it. So, you know, you have to take what you can get. A lot of the stuff is online because you, and now people are like, okay, now how do I do that? And that's a whole thing. Um, so if you get a game going, it is. It behooves you to try and preserve it. And one of the good ways to do that is to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Yep. If you've got like four people playing in a game and one of them absolutely wants to fight everything and one of them absolutely never wants to fight at all, they have to be, be willing to bend on that. Or one of them is not going to be happy. Or they'll both be unhappy at different times. I was in a game, this is years ago now, uh, my friend Chris was running it. Chris, by the way, if you are listening, you were a great DM. Um, and and we had a player who, I mean, he he wasn't disruptive was the thing, but he always wanted to fight. He loved if the session was like a three hour combat. It was just it was his jam. And the thing about him was at one point, I remember there was a moment where like the DM said, "Well, you know what? In order for you to get powerful enough to do that, you'd have to fight thousands of enemies." And he said, "Put him in front of me." The whole table laughed. But we knew he meant it. But since we all knew he meant it and we all knew what we wanted and everybody had talked about it, we didn't actually have a session zero, but we were just, we knew each other well enough that we could get away with it. You don't know the strangers 
that you're meeting online to play a game with. Mm-hmm. If you if you say sign up for like a, a you know an, an, an adventurers league or uh, the Pathfinder Society or what have you, if you if you're doing games like that, you don't know the people. You're going to you're going to learn those people through the game you run. You need to like set some ground rules. You need to say, "Okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that." Like, you know, are you are you on board? What are you guys looking for? And it can't just be the DM telling you. The DM has to actually ask because you are at the end of the game, you're just another player. And if the player other players don't want to do what you're doing, they'll stop doing it. Yep. Yeah, and and I think this kind of leads into the other thing and we're Kind of running a little bit over on time, but I don't care. I think this is kind of an important topic. Um, finding groups right now. I've seen a lot of, of Discord groups. I've seen a lot of Twitter groups. I've seen a lot of social media gatherings looking for players for games or looking for games to be players in. And I think that part of that, especially with like local game stores, as I don't know about elsewhere, but I know here in my local area, um, because of the reduction in in-person play, have been trying to push people to Discord in particular to sort of set games up and and do things with like Spell Table for Magic or uh, Roll20 for, you know, actually participating in like live play for D&D and, and, and other games like that. But they really should be, in these circumstances, you should be willing to talk about what you want First and foremost, if you're coming in as a new player and you want to have a cinematic experience, talk about that. Talk about like, look, I'm new, but I I really enjoy, well, I'll use critical role as an example, and I'm looking for something a little more cinematic as far as like things go. There's no harm in saying that up front. You might find that the other people you're interacting with in that virtual room will echo that response, or you might find players that, that want to do that and a DM that wants to do that. And then you can all be on that same page and have a happy experience. You might have ones that want to be very role play heavy. Uh, and, you know, you can find groups like that, that, you know, they really want to get into their characters. They want to, they want to immerse themselves in it. They have a DM that wants to do that. They want to immerse themselves in the world. And you have others that, like Matt pointed out, like in his previous game where there was somebody who they loved combat and they want to have that very dungeon grindy experience. Having that conversation early should always be your first step. It should be, this is what I'm looking for, or these are the players I'm looking for. This is the type of game I want to play, or this is the type of game. And as long as you do that up front, you're going to have a much easier time. And like, I commend Liz for doing that because again, it's really easy to say, I'm going to run this book, not say anything else, have people join in and then potentially have somebody be disappointed. As a matter of fact, I think we, I think Mitch, I think said he like was bowing out because of, you know, it wasn't really his cup of tea. Right. And there's no harm in that. It's because we had that conversation up front. And I, yeah, think, absolutely. and I think that's really, really important. And no matter what you do to get started in just tabletop in general, that should always be your first conversation. And I don't know if we want to talk more about like, if we want to save this for the next one, we can talk about like other tips and, and tricks for getting started as a player or getting started as a DM. Um, I think that's, that is a topic that's going to take I, us at least half an hour. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. So I hope that you guys have enjoyed this. Is there anything else you guys want to add about like, the rule zero conversation or anything else that we've talked about today. Well, I'd just like to toss in there. And this is something we talked about during the pre-show that we haven't gotten back around to is that D and D tabletop role playing. It's a collaborative storytelling experience. Mm-hmm. You are building a story, creating a world together. The DM may have their ideas. The player may have their ideas 
and you're coming together and building something, something new, something that neither of you know what it's going to be in the end. And to do that, everyone does need to have the same expectations. Everyone needs to understand what they're getting into. Uh, so I think it's 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 a perception thing. It's you've got to understand that this isn't just okay. I'm going to sit here and play a video game, but it's I'm part of like this experience in storytelling, and so the DM has to set expectations, the players have to set expect expectations, and you're kind of you're coming together in the middle and building this thing. Yeah. Um. To, to piggyback off that, because I agree with everything you just said. Uh. Basically. In, in the case of the, the thing I mentioned before, um, the reason that that game worked was because he, he was willing to put up with all of our like shenanigans and role playing. He, he would even, he did it. He would play along and he would role play his character. And in return, we understood we're going to have to give him a fight at least every other session. There's got to be something for him to do. And that's the thing is you need to know, are you going to be flexible on this? Can you be flexible on this? If, if a player comes in, and he's like, I've always wanted to play this game fatal. I cannot be flexible on that. That game is not happening with me in it. You, you go find someone else to run that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ain't there. And we'll do a show someday about fatal and why we're saying that, but just trust me. No, I, I think that's going to be an episode where it's the f- top five games that we just aren't going to play. Never, <laughs> never, never will happen. Absolutely. Never. This game has rules for things. There should not be rules for. He agreed. Uh, so but that's a conversation, you know, if everybody in the group is, is like totally down for whatever. And one guy is like, I absolutely won't do X and everybody else in the group is like, but X is the one thing we want to do. Then either we don't do that and they're unhappy or the other player doesn't do that. And they're unhappy because it's the one thing they wanted to do. If nobody can bend on that, then that's, it's okay for people to just not take part. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. That's, this is about consent. It's about what you consent to as a player. It's about what the DM is asking you to consent to. It's about the back and forth of that discussion uh, because this is collaborative. It, it's and it's it's not just collaborative storytelling. It's collaborative gameplay. It's collaborative fun. Um, if it's not fun, life's too short for it. I'm not going to be in a game where I'm expected to do things I just don't want to do. Agreed. Like you, you know, and so. Yeah, I think Liz just nailed it there with that that idea. The entire the entire experience is collaborative. The players, if you are running a game and the players do something you weren't expecting, you can grouse about it a little bit afterwards. But in that moment, find a way to work with it. If you have to throw an encounter you just made up at them to to keep them busy while you think of something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've done this. To them, the people sitting here with us, I did this to them because I had no idea. They didn't want to go to my magical city and I had nothing. I had nothing planned. A computer cannot handle this. The video game would never let you do it. The video game will just sit here and go, okay, until you guys go to my magical city, nothing happens. But as a person, you can, in fact, change your direction, even if it means you have to come up with, okay, there's talking bears. Cool. Deal with the talking bears while I come. What, what is going on? What is going on? What is going on? I'll have some demons attack them. Okay, good. That'll keep them busy for a few minutes. Um, Pirate ship, pirate ship. That'll work. That's the kind of thing you should always be willing to incorporate your players into the story that is happening. If they decide they don't want to do something, they want to do something else, let them. They will be happier for it. And you might be too. Yeah. Or or at least you'll be like, wow, I never would have thought of that. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have. (laughs) 
But I think both Matt and Liz have made some very good points. Um, again, be communicative, talk, and you'll be you'll have a much better. But Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means this podcast lighting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast for the queue, and an ads-free site experience. And as a reminder, all of us at Blizzard Watch stand with all employees at all companies that are fighting and demanding change for a safer work environment and a better tomorrow. So I do want to thank you both for joining me today. Uh, Thank you, all of our listeners. Uh, We'll see you in a month. 